My name's uh, Pastor Michael Bess, as most of you know, um, and this fall we're going through a series in the book of Genesis looking at the life of Isaac and Jacob, and from here on out, the story primarily focuses and narrows in on Jacob. Well, have you ever seen something truly amazing? And that, that definition could be different for each and every one of us. What you might find amazing, I might not think is all that great. What I might find amazing, you may, may not be that impressed by. But have you ever seen something truly amazing where you just had to like take a step back and stare because it was so amazing? I know for me, when I think of something that's overwhelming in its beauty and, and it's amazing, it's, my mind gets drawn to so many different places, but it's typically something outside. Um, my wife and I are both nature-loving introverts, and you're like, why do you then work in the city of Chicago in the Midwest? Why? God has a sense of humor. That's why. Right? And so this is where God has placed us. But we love to, when we're able to, to travel away and to get out to the mountains and to see things. And I was raised um, at the base of an 11,000-foot mountain out in California, and I love to be out in nature. One of the places that I visited a lot growing up as a child and then went back to a few years ago that never ceases to amaze me is the Grand Canyon. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? If you've never been to the Grand Canyon, pictures like this are like, wow, that looks cool. No, it's better than that, right? Pictures don't do it justice. No matter how many times I've been there, every time I walk up, and I've been to the north side, to the south side, to all the different viewing points, every time I walk up to it, I'd say in my head, and sometimes out loud, wow, wow, that's amazing. As it's just the beauty is overwhelming and just the, the nature of it, it's, it's something that I personally can't help but say, that is amazing. And each and every one of us, when we see something that is amazing, we all act a certain way and we have certain responses to it. What I want to challenge you with tonight is how we view something amazing, like for me, the Grand Canyon. Maybe for you, it's, it's when you see your kids or when you, you see a perfect song lyric or when you, you hear a beautiful song, you think that's amazing. Whatever it is, when your heart is stirred, that's how our heart should be stirred by God. When we get a glimpse of who he truly is and what he's truly done, the proper response is for us is to simply say, Wow, that's amazing. And we're going to look tonight at a story where Jacob experiences the amazing God, and we're going to learn from his response to God. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, I encourage you to open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, our entire text for tonight is also in the handout um, that you hopefully received when you came in. Genesis chapter 28. To recap, to, to put us in context of where we are, Jacob and Esau were twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob has already stolen Esau's birthright. He's then, in the last week, we looked at how he, he tricked with his mother's help, deceived to get the blessing from his father, Isaac, stole it from Esau. Esau wanted vengeance on him, wanted to kill him. So Rebekah had Jacob sent away to go find a wife back in her home country of Haran. And so Jacob, as we pick up the story tonight, has just come off of this experience. Verse 10, 
It says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And so Jacob leaves Beersheba, the home where his family has been for nearly two generations now. Abraham settled it. Isaac came back and has lived there. And that's where Jacob was raised. And he leaves the lands that God has promised his family. And he heads towards Haran. Now, if you've been reading through the book of Genesis, this isn't the first time that this name Haran pops up. Haran actually is where Abraham came from to go to the promised land. In Genesis chapter 12, we're told that Abraham and his father, well, their family moved to Haran, and it was in Haran that Abraham's father, Terah, died. And in, a- and in Haran is where Abraham received this first call of God in Genesis chapter 12. And so in a sense, the, the route that Abraham took into the promised land, the, the idea is Jacob's now following that same route out of the promised land. And he comes to a place, as his stopping, as it mentions for us multiple times, it's not a strategic location, it's simply this. It's late, and he's tired, and he finds himself a Tempur-Pedic rock, and he puts down, and he goes to sleep. Verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And so Jacob has this dream of a ladder ascending to heaven. This word ladder, maybe um, many translations interpret it stairway. Um, we shouldn't interpret it literally how we would think of a ladder now. Because I always, as a kid, I was like, if this is a ladder and the angels are going up and down, isn't that dangerous? Like, I always thought it was one person at a time on the ladder. That's what I was taught. Don't don't put our modern conceptions of things onto it. It's a large ladder, a stairway, something going up, signifying into the heavens. It's interesting here that this ladder, this stairway reaches into the heavens. It reminds us of the goal of the people in Genesis chapter 11 from the Tower of Babel who built a tower, why they wanted to build a tower to reach heaven. And yet here, heaven is not something that we reached up to, but now heaven has come down to Jacob. Heaven has come down to him. And the angels of God are going up and down, descending on the ladder. Verse 13, And behold, the Lord, Yahweh, God himself, stood above it, stood at the top of this ladder, stairway, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. God shows up in Genesis 28 and he restores his covenant. He gives his promise once again, but this time he gives it to Jacob. 
He gives this promise to Jacob. And this promise is so similar, if if you've read through the book of Genesis, even to what Isaac received a few chapters ago and to what Abraham, his grandfather, received several times from chapter 12 onward. There's three similarities as we look to this covenant promise that God makes with Abraham, with Isaac, and now with Jacob that are important for us to notice as we study the life of Jacob. Three promises that God hinges on and their land, offspring, and blessing. God's promise to his people included land, a place for them to live. For Abraham, it was a place in which he didn't know. For Jacob, it's the place in which he had been. He promises them offspring, which seems so out of nowhere for Abraham, who was an old man with no kids when God called him. And God gives this promise. He restores it again to Jacob. Not only that, but he promises him blessing. Oftentimes, material blessing, but ultimately pointing to the greatest blessing of all that will come from the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, pointing to our Savior, Jesus Christ himself. What's amazing is we we so miss this sometimes in the passage. This is, he's nearly 40 years old at this point, over 40. This is the first time we know that Jacob hears from God. This is the first time that we know Jacob hears directly from God. He's received the blessing from his father, the blessing which included these three promises that Isaac blessed him with, but now he's hearing this promise directly from God. The covenant that God made with Abraham passed on to Isaac is now clearly the covenant that God passes on to Jacob as well. What's one of the unique things about this promise that God made to Jacob is found in verse 14. When talking about his offspring, it says, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. That's a unique thing to Jacob that wasn't given in the promises to either Abraham or Abraham, excuse me, or to Isaac. Again, it, it recalls us back to the Tower of Babel. Remember, one one of the purposes of the Tower of Babel was to spread the people throughout the earth. Now, Jacob, in a reminiscent scene where instead of going up to heaven, heaven has come down. Jacob is told that his family will spread throughout the whole earth. And a key to the promise is in verse 15. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I am with you and will keep you. I will bring you back into this land. Jacob's leaving the promised land and God promises him that he will one day come back to that place. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. We see three responses in this passage to an awesome God. Three responses to an awesome God, amazing God. The first, excuse me, is awe. The first response to an amazing God that Jacob had that should characterize us when we get a glimpse of who God is, is simply he stands in awe and wonder of who God is. This is the proper response when we get a glimpse of the character of God Almighty. Moses echoes a similar thing upon his song, upon the the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15. He says this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, 
awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. Friends, let us never fail to stand in awe of who God is and his love towards us. Let us never be too busy and too rushed in life to remember and to look and to get a glimpse and just stop and look and remember how awesome God truly is. We, we lose this sometimes because in our world today, we so often focus on the nearness of God or what's called the imminence of God. And that's true that God is close to his creation. God is available to you whenever you cry out, whenever God's people need him and cry out in prayer, God is there. He will listen. He loves us. But it's a tension that we also have told because it's also true that scripture teaches that God is a transcendent God. He is above all creation. He is not just like us, but better. He is totally other than us. He is God. He is holy. He is awesome. We are not. And when we get a glimpse of how amazing he is, we should stand in awe. One of the the things that we should constantly be reminded of in our lives that should stand in awe of God is this fact that just as God moved towards Jacob, notice he took all the, the initiative in moving towards Jacob, so does God take the initiative in moving towards you and I as well. God is a God of initiative towards his people. For us, we can look at the New Testament and we see this in Romans chapter 3. It says, if this is true of each one of us. Romans chapter 3 verse 11 says, None is righteous, No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In our sin, we don't go looking for God. Instead, we run from God. We hide ourselves from God. Which is why Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44, he says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to God. No one can come to Jesus unless God the Father draws them to himself. Friends, this is an amazing thing. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We should stand in awe of that fact. God moved towards us in the midst of our sin and the mess of our lives. He didn't wait for us to get ourselves together, but he comes to us in our mess. Remember where Jacob is. He's in the middle of a mess. He just lied and cheated his way, and it's the last time he'll ever see his mother ever because of the actions that he has done. He just caused a mess out of everything. God takes the initiative towards him. Friends, maybe you're here tonight, and you think to be a Christian means that you clean up your life You start coming to church, you get everything arranged, you get all your sin managed, and then you can come to God. That's not how Christianity works. Christianity is a plea that says, God, in the midst of my mess, in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my brokenness, would you come to me? God draws us to himself, and as we experience that and stand in awe of him, we are changed. We don't have to change before we come to him. It's why, by meeting him that we are changed. So it says this, verse 19, the next morning, verse 18, excuse me. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head 
and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Bethel, literally meaning the house Bethel of God, the house of God. God is in this place. God has dwelled here. He sets up a pillar, meaning it's, it signifies for him, it's a place set apart for worship of the holy God. He's doing this reminiscent of his father and his grandfather before him. Abraham did this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 7 to 8. Abraham says this, So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham, too, built an altar, notice, almost in the exact same place in which Jacob finds himself two generations later. Just so, so much so his father, Isaac, in chapter 26, we're told that Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. So Jacob is modeling and doing and practicing his faith like how he's seen it out, and he builds, builds an altar to God. It says also that on this altar, he poured oil on the top of it. He poured oil on it. It's significant of setting something apart, of anointing it for a special significance of this place. We know that this is true, not just from the rest of scripture, but this is a few chapters later, how this event is interpreted by God himself. In Genesis chapter 31, when looking back at this event that Jacob did, God says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. God sees him pouring oil on this as anointing, setting this place aside as a remembrance of what God has done. Anointing sets it aside for a special purpose by God. In the Old Testament, anyone who was anointed was being set apart uniquely for God. The priests were set apart and they were anointed by God. And we see this is true of Aaron and of his sons were anointed, set apart. The tabernacle was to be anointed with oil and set apart as the place of worship for God. And Moses anoints it and sets it apart. When kings come into Israel's history, Saul and David, they're anointed, they're set apart for worship for God. The second response to an amazing God is worship. The second response to an amazing God that we see in Jacob's life is worship. I think as this passage flows, we have a pattern here that can be true in our lives. Our first response, as we see, should be in awe of who God is. But in awe of who God is, it should move us to worship him. It should move us to, to worship God for who he truly is. There's so many things in our lives sometimes that stop us from worshiping God. There's so many things that, that are hindrances in our lives to living a life of worship. Worship is not just when you come to church and you sing. Sometimes like, oh, that's worship. No, all of our lives are worship. All of our lives are to be an act of worship to God. Yet so many things get in the way of that. One of those things that, that, that stops worship in our lives is sin. Sin can stop worship in our lives. If we have unrepentant sin that's clinging into our hearts, then we will not be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. Isaiah chapter 59 says that our sin builds a barrier between us and God. 
And for us to truly live a life of worship, we need to be repentant of the sin that we have in our lives. But it's not just sin. There's other things that come into our lives that that at times, if we don't handle them properly, can actually set up and prevent barriers for us to living a life of worship. One of those is suffering. Suffering at times can actually stop us from worship in our response to it. Have you ever met someone who, due to what they've had happen in their lives, horrible things, and they're filled with anger and bitterness and resentment towards God? Because they've experienced suffering, and it's because of the suffering they've had in their lives, they're not able to worship God. If, if we don't deal with our suffering and think biblically and, and see the purposes of God beyond our own understanding and our own finite existence, then it can often turn to bitterness and anger in our lives, and it can hinder us from worshiping God. Another thing that can stop us from worshiping God is ourselves, our selfishness. We think, especially this is often true in church settings, we think, well, I want the music to be what I want it to be and to sound like I want and to sing the songs that I want to sing. And we turn worship into a matter of personal preferences rather than than worship to a holy God. And our own selfishness and our own selfish desires can get in the way of worshiping God. Not only that, but our service can get in the way of worshiping God. There's the story of Mary and Martha, right, where the one sister is so busy doing everything that she forgets to just sit down and worship God. Many of you in here are people of service and you love to serve God. And I'm so thankful that churches could not exist without people who love to serve. But even in the midst of your service, don't miss the opportunity to stop and be in awe of who God is and to worship him for that. Sometimes our service makes us so busy that we don't take a few moments just to stop and worship God. Fifthly, what can get in the way of worship is strife. Relational conflict between one another. As we come and there is conflict amongst the body of Christ, amongst believers, it hinders our worship and it gets in the way of us worshiping God. Friends, as we see God for who he is, and we stand in awe of that, we should be moved to worship God. Is there anything in your life today that's holding you back from truly worshiping God? Is there sin in your life that you haven't confessed and dealt with and asked for forgiveness for? Is there strife between you and someone else? Is a response to pain and suffering in your life building up walls of bitterness and resentment towards God? Whatever it would be, my prayer is that tonight we would see God for who he is and our hearts would respond just as Jacob's did in total worship to him. Verse 20. After Jacob builds this altar, he anoints it. He names the place Bethel. Verse 20 says this, Then Jacob made a vow. It's interesting, Jacob is the only patriarch to actually make a vow towards God. This is something unique that Jacob himself does. He made a vow to God saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come against my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, 
I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob's vow to God is based on, notice it's based on what God has already said to him. Some, sometimes we read this passage like, man, that's a lot of ifs, Jacob. Like God just revealed himself to you, right? Like, well, if this is true, if this is true. Notice that what he's saying is basically, God, if you keep your word, God, if you're the faithful God, which he believes that he is, if you are who you say you are, then I will do all of this. I will devote my life to you. The vow was based on what God had said. God, if your presence is actually with me, if you will be with me and not leave me, God, if your power is with me, when, when he says, if you will keep me in this way that I go, keep is, is the, and the idea of God watching over his people. It's how a shepherd keeps watch over his flock. In battle, how a bodyguard keeps watch over the person he's guarding. That's the picture of God keeping watch over Jacob. God, if you keep watch over me, if God is and who he says he is, and his promise to do, then Jacob promises this. God, my promise is that if you're true, then you'll be my God. That I'll build this. This will be a place of worship set aside for you and that he'll give a full tenth of his belongings to you. The idea already seen in scripture in, when Abraham and Melchizedek had interactions and Abraham gave a full tenth. Now we see Jacob offering a full tenth of his material possessions in worship towards God. When we see an amazing God, our first response is awe, second is worship, and third should be devotion. Third should be devotion to God. Jacob banked his life on the promises of God. Friends, if we bank our lives on the promises of God, we won't be disappointed. We won't be disappointed if, like Jacob, we bank our lives on the promises of God. I think that, that there's some principles here as to how Jacob's devotion helps us think of devotion to God, what that should include in our lives. First, devotion to God means that we should submit to his power. Jacob says, you will be my God. Meaning this, God, if, if you're my God, that means you're in charge and I'm not. It means obedience. It means he'll listen. He'll follow. He'll do what God tells him to do. He'll submit to his power. Not only that, but with this idea of worship, that devotion to God must be an idea of serving God as the priority of our lives. Serving God is the priority of our lives, not like, hey, if I find extra time in my schedule, I'll serve God. Right? I'm not the oldest one in the room, but I think all of us can understand the fact that if we think that one time when we have extra time, well, then we'll start serving God. When will you actually start serving God? Never. Right? You'll never just have extra time laying around than which you'll start, okay, then I'll start serving God. But when we make God our priority and service to him, that should be a part of our devotion to God. And also to sacrifice our possessions. To sacrifice our possessions in following after God. Jacob models after Abraham and giving a tenth of his possessions back to God as an act of worship. You say, well, is this something that if we're a Christian, are we required to do this? No, you're not required to do it, but God expects more. You're not required to give 10%. God expects more. He expects generosity. If I give my wife 10% of my time, does she feel like I'm being generous with my time? No. No, she does not. Right? She expects more than that. 
God doesn't want just the baseline of our lives. He doesn't want just a little bit of what we have. I think Jacob's perspective on possessions helps us because we think, man, God wants a tenth of my stuff. No, God wants a tenth of his stuff that he's given to you. Read read the last line there. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Right? Jacob was willing to give back to God because he had the proper perspective and understanding to begin with. He wasn't saying, God, a tenth of my stuff, of my money, of my belongings, I'll give to you. He's saying, God, you're going to bless me. And once you've blessed me with your belongings, how could I not share back to you? Friends, if devotion to God doesn't meet us everywhere we are in our lives, then we're not really devoted to him. God is a God who's worthy of our awe, worthy of our worship, worthy of our devotion. Have you ever noticed how sometimes when it comes to our relationship with God, and I find myself, this is true in my life, I think at times, there's this temptation to view my relationship with God, sometimes even coming to church and and doing good spiritual activities, reading my Bible prayer, I view it, it's almost like going to the gas station, right? Like, I need a fill up. I need a little something to get me going. I'm going to go to the gas station, right? It's like our church is our weekly fill-up to get us going through the next week. And we view church as like someplace we come to fill ourselves up to get us through the next week. I hope that you find encouragement and joy and fellowship if, if you come to this church. But that's not what worship is all about. That's not the proper response to an amazing God. It's more like this, to take the metaphor, it's not perfect, But instead of the Christian life isn't like filling up at the gas tank, it's like every Sunday going to the Chicago auto show and just looking in awe of how amazing things are. As we come to church, as we worship God, not to get something for us, but to stand in awe of who he truly is, God will change us. The more we glimpse how amazing God is, we see how awesome he is, we, we respond in worship, we're moved to devotion. That's how God changes each and every one of us. Friends, we serve an amazing God. A God who takes the initiative and comes to us in the midst of our sin and our brokenness. When we see this amazing God, we should stand in awe of how good he is towards us. We should worship him. We should give all of our lives to follow him. God, we thank you that you indeed are a God who moves towards us, that you are a God who takes the initiative. God, I pray that that our response to you would be one worthy of how great you are. God, that we would never become people who just need you for our practical purposes but who would want to glorify you, to worship you, to honor you, to devote our lives to you. God, you are a great God, a holy God, the only thing worthy of living our lives for. Okay, may that be true more and more of each and every one of us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>